I consider myself really lucky and really, really blessed to be even on this call with you uh, on this podcast with you today. Um, and because of that, I just have this strange, you, you can, you can call it spiritual. You can, you can call it God, you can call it whatever you want, but I just have this strong desire to get this message out to as many people as possible. And, and, and really, you know, through this experience, I'll get into it more, but I, I have had people reach out to me from across the country, people that I don't even know. And if, if just one person hears this story and can relate and they can get checked up and, and live another 40 years, I feel like I've, I've done karma and the world better. Listening to the Maximum Enthusiasm Podcast, the exploration of life fully optimized with Megan Hotman. Hey, podcast listeners, welcome back to this episode of the Maximum Enthusiasm Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Mode Sports Nutrition. Their website is myfitmode.com myfitmode.com. Mode is a natural sports nutrition company and their vision is to empower athletes of all disciplines to get the most out of their potential while promoting a healthy lifestyle. Um, Yeah, that sounds exactly like the theme of this show. And it is not ironic then that I happen to just love these products. I got hooked on them back in the spring. It started with my obsession with their energy shots. They make both blocks drink mixes as well as pre-mixed drinks. And it was the power drink, specifically the re-energizer shot that made me a true believer. I struggle with muscle cramps in my legs after long, hot endurance events. And whatever it is about these re-energizer shots, I swear it is magic. I've been using these shots for all of my long gravel races this year, as well as long training rides. In fact, Dirty Kansas is the perfect example. I had zero muscular cramps anywhere. Triceps, fingers, legs, calves, face, you name it. There were no muscle cramps. And um, I carry these little orange mango tasting shots with me on big rides and during big races. And so far, I have 100% success um, with these products along for the ride. I am also a big fan of the blocks. They make these all natural ingredient energy blocks. They call them raw energy, and they are either blueberry and coconut, mango and apricot, or chocolate and walnut. Quite frankly, they are all my favorite. All of them have just a little bit of energizer in them, usually a little bit of ginseng or something similar, but they are raw energy. You can actually pronounce the ingredients, and they are packaged in these really perfectly sized little plastic wrappers that make it super easy to just grab a couple bites of the bar and then put it back in your pocket. A big believer of these products. Big believer in this company. I love their owner. She, um, just a quick story. I ordered online too late to get the product that I needed in time for Dirty Kanza. And I told her how important it was because I was really worried about muscle cramps. The owner actually took the time and effort to get those products overnighted to me to my hotel in tiny town, Emporia, Kansas. And it was a large part of my success at this year's Dirty Kanza race in the single speed. So now I don't let myself go dry. I always make sure I've got some of their product on hand. I'm a huge believer. 
check them out. They're offering a discount to our listeners too. If you use the code HOTMAN, H-O-T-T-M-A-N at checkout, you'll save yourself some money. It is all refrigeration required. So it will come to you in a cooler pack and you want to stick that stuff in your fridge as soon as it arrives. Again, check them out on the website, myfitmode.com and use the code HOTMAN, H-O-T-T-M-A-N at checkout to save yourself some cash. Welcome back, listeners. Today's guest is my good friend, Walt Blusser. We go way back to the early 2000s. We had the opportunity to meet thanks to bike racing back in the Midwest. I was in law school in Nebraska and then accepted a job in Kansas City. Walt was living in Kansas City, and so we were doing a lot of the same bike races in the Nebraska, Kansas, Missouri, Iowa region. And I had a little chihuahua named Sydney, and he was obsessed with my dog, and he would come over and um, talk to us at races. Got to know Walt really well. He ended up being at my wedding, and then I was around when he first met his now wife, Mel B, which was super cool. So I got to be around at the beginning of their relationship, and they just recently welcomed their new little one, Freddie B, into their lives last fall in August. So they've got a real little one. I think he's eight months now. And through the whole time that I've known Walt pretty consistently, we have always caught up on bike rides. Um, I'm not a fast enough runner to be able to keep up with him on runs. He's pretty fast, but we've always enjoyed bike rides and there really wasn't much time during that 2004 to 2020 time span that I haven't seen him at least once a year or so. So I feel like I've had a pretty continuous picture of Walt's life and we've definitely stayed in touch about... um, you know, personal things and bike racing things and just work things. He and I are both very type A and driven and we can get a little bit anxious and we both work really hard and move really fast. And we just have fairly similar personalities that way. And um, Walt's wife, Mel, is also a lawyer. So we have that in common. And it's just been really fun to get to watch Walt's life unfold and watch his marriage succeed and watch them welcome this new little one into their lives. It's just been really fun. And um, I'm thankful to cycling for that because most of my longest standing relationships and friendships really, when I trace them back, they did originate with the bike as the central theme. And so I'm, I'm super grateful to the bike for that. And um, we do this thing called lookout week. Every June we ride up lookout more, uh, lookout mountain here in golden every morning for five mornings in a row. And we start at 6am and it's a real pain in the ass to get up at four 30 and ride over there. But it's always really fun to see everyone get together and cruise up the mountain and enjoy the sunrise and basically be done with our workout by eight in the morning. And it's just a really fun way to reconnect with people that we don't always get to see for the rest of the year. And so that has been the case with Walt is that he has participated in Lookout Week um, basically since I started doing it, which has probably been almost a decade now. And we always catch up that week every summer. And I remember Walt, especially over the last couple Junes, expressing just how out of sync he felt with himself physically. And certainly his lifestyle made it understandable. He uh, had a very busy and demanding job that included weekly travel for three days every week down to Austin. And he was a new dad or about to be a new dad. And he was just managing, you know, house, home stress and work stress and travel and eating out and drinking and all the things. And so I just 
um, would acknowledge the fact that he was struggling, but also it was very understandable why he would feel out of shape, just given that his life didn't facilitate the same type of commitment to a training schedule that it once did. And I think we all definitely fall into that trap where we uh, compare ourselves to our former best, healthiest, most race-ready selves. I know I certainly do. Back when I was in law school and was a law clerk, I had a lot more time and flexibility uh, to train and race. And of course, youth was also definitely on my side and had just a lot more um, desire and drive to train hard and race. And so, of course, I was in better shape then than I am now. And um, all that to say, this story and experience that Wall shares on this podcast is really transformative, whether you've had a health condition or situation or a life um, event or a traumatic event of some kind, a near-death experience that has shaken you or whether you haven't, but you've been sensing that you needed to make a shift in your own life. Maybe this message will be the catalyst for you. And of course, it comes during the COVID timeframe we're talking about when all of the old ways that we would define normal have been thrown up into the air and the new normal as we emerge is going to be something totally different. So this is also a really perfect and beautiful opportunity to redefine what our priorities are in life and to take stock of them right now and make some commitments to ourselves that when the smoke clears, that we will do life differently on the other side. And I think Walt's story really conveys that message powerfully as well. So I want to thank my friend Walt for taking the time to share his story. And I hope that it can help others who may be in a similar circumstance, or even if not, that it might provide you some um, thought-provoking subjects and topics to really consider how you might transition your life towards one where you are truly focused on your top values, your top priorities, and doing the things you've said you always wanted to do because life is indeed very, very short. And I want to just send you out with that as we tee up today's show. Thanks as always for listening to Maximum Enthusiasm. We are so grateful for our sponsors. We're stoked to have new sponsors on board. Can't thank everyone enough for their support and selfishly during this time of the mandatory quarantine stay at home. Um, It has been a really lonesome time for me and I have just so appreciated these very intentional and thoughtful conversations with my show guests. So uh, thanks for listening because it keeps giving me a reason to continue doing this podcast. Have a great day. Doing this. Thanks for diving in on this with me. So my guest today is my longtime friend and fellow cyclist, Walt Blesser. Walt, welcome to the show. Hello. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) Walt and I are, well, I'm so happy to have you on. This is really fun for me since we go way, way back and we also have a specific topic we want to talk about. But as we sit here today, it is April 16th and Denver is getting hammered with snow. I probably have close to eight or nine inches at my house right now. How about you? Yeah, I've got about six inches of snow in my house. I can't believe it that uh, <sighs> it feels like a beautiful winter day on April 16th. Exactly, exactly. We had this 
stint of 70 degree days a week or so ago. I saw that you snuck in a ride yesterday knowing that the storm was coming. So well done on that. And yeah, this is making the whole uh, stay at home and social distancing thing even harder because now we're really in lockdown. (laughs) Oh, we completely are. And I feel for all of those out there that have small children at home and they're in their homes and they're, they're trying to teach them and they're trying to do their jobs from home. And, you know, I, I know in Denver specifically, we really take, sometimes we take for granted how great our weather can be. And uh, we've been really blessed, I would say, in the last month or so during this lockdown to have beautiful days that we can get to parks and we can walk around our neighborhoods. And I'll tell you, Megan, I've met more of my neighbors in the last five weeks uh, than I've met in the last eight years. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I know. There's, there's some good that's coming of this, isn't there? I actually, you know, a lot of people with this lockdown say they feel, you know, they call it an isolation, they call it a stay-at-home rule, and they, I actually feel more connected with my neighborhood than I probably have felt in years, because I think I am like many of us who, um, I travel for my job, um, I'm constantly on the go, you get in this, just you just get in this complete uh, wash, Group. rinse, repeat, yep you know, cycle and you don't stop and talk to the guy next door and, and have a beer. And I did not know his wife was pregnant and (laughs) you know, it's, it's, it's cool to learn that. And we've been sharing experiences since we've got a little one that's about eight months old. And um, it's really forced a lot of us that probably needed to slow down. It's a, it's been Mm -hmm. a forced slowdown. And I, I think when we come out of this whole thing, we're going to be a better connected society. I really do. Amen. It makes me really happy to say I'll hear you say those things too, because you have been in constant motion as most of us have. I'm certainly not picking on you. And we kind of get into our groove where we know what routes we're going to take and we know what times we're going to go to the airport. And we're such a well-oiled machine that we kind of almost go to great lengths to avoid disruption or things that might slow us down, like a conversation with a stranger. (laughs) And we miss everything in the meantime. So... Oh, I agree completely. Yeah. So um, as you alluded to, you have a little one at home and uh, that's exciting. So you have little Freddie B and he's eight months old already, which is crazy. And um, how's that going with the, with being at home and having all this extra time with him? Well, you know, uh, I I can tell you it's it's an interesting last year (laughs) of my life. I knew uh, as as we were pregnant with a uh, little guy, that something was going to have to change. Uh, you know, weekly travel of three to four days a week uh, makes it rough on any relationship, uh, much less when you bring in a, a small child to the picture. So uh, going into, you know, maternity, paternity leave, we knew that there were going to have to be changes on the horizon for how we handle our day-to-day activities if we want to be a good parent. Because uh, I'm 40 years old, uh, you know, I'm not... I don't view this as my, uh, I kind of view this as a situation where I don't get another crack at it really soon. Um, in other words, you know, I don't, I'm not 22 and, oh, you know, maybe I'll have another kid later because I messed that up. I don't get that right. chance, uh, you know, because when he's 20, I'm 60. So uh, as far as I'm concerned, Fred didn't choose to come into this life. So I chose to bring him into this life. And so we want to provide him with the best uh, experience that he can have. And so, you know, we, we made a conscious decision last August, last fall to really reevaluate what's important in life and really uh, learn how to be good parents and really try to 
just every moment, just try to take it in and, uh, and experience it at that and be present at that time. Um, which, which is quite an alteration from the old way, isn't it? It, it really is. Um, I completely agree with that. And, uh, you know, it's, you know, again, when you're 30 to 40 and you're, you're running around and your number one thought on your mind is how am I going to get my ride in or how fast can I go up lookout or, you know, how many days am I going to get in the back country this year? Um, and you're checking snow reports every morning. It's, <laughs> I, I, as much as I love all that stuff and I will continue to love it, uh, it just gets a little bit shifted in the deck, if you will. Sure. And so in addition to this addition of the new little man in your life and this shift that you and, and Mel made in your life and this commitment to being more present for him, you also had a pretty no, a significant life event that you did not go looking for, but it found you and it probably reinforced many of these things 10x. So um, why don't you talk so, us through it and take as much time telling the story as, as you like? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, before I say anything, I understand that uh, there's a lot of different people's perspectives and views on health conditions. Um, through my journey, I have met a lot of individuals that have uh, somewhat opposing views um, in the sense that, you know, they just simply don't want to talk about it. Um, ah. Whether that is they view it as a weakness or they, it's, I don't even like to use that term. I think a lot of people experience what I call some sort of a health PTSD um, where talking about it or reliving the experience um, brings pain and, it, and sure. it brings back memories that they'd rather just put in, in the rearview mirror. Um, I consider myself really lucky and really, really blessed to be even on this call with you uh, on this podcast with you today. Um, and because of that, I just have this strange, you, you can, you can call it spiritual. You can, you can call it God, you can call it whatever you want, but I just have this strong desire to get this message out to as many people as possible. And, and, and really, you know, through this experience, I'll get into it more, but I, I have had people reach out to me from across the country, people that I don't even know. And if, if just one person hears this story and can relate and they can get checked up and, and live another 40 years, I feel like I've, I've done karma and the world better. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'll just jump right into it. Um, as yeah, you right are on. well aware, and I'm really excited to be talking to you because telling this story to, to someone that maybe doesn't know me as well as you do or others, um, it's, it's, you might take it differently. You were there in the 2000s when we were racing bikes. You know yeah. – you know, when I was in my 20s, you and I were in the same racing circuit throughout the Midwest. Uh, I, that's how I met you. I mean, we met. That's right. You know, you were warming up and I liked playing with your dog. Not going to lie. Um, yep. <laughs> <laughs> this would have been probably like 04-ish. Yeah. Probably 2004 in the Midwest. Yep. Yep. 2004. And, and then, as you know, and I think a lot of endurance athletes that are listening to this know um, you know, our endurance community kind of becomes our adopted family. Um, Absolutely. I think it's, it's funny. There's different views on endurance athletes of everything from, from those not involved, sometimes considered a selfish endeavor. Um, I actually experienced the opposite. Uh, yes, there is definitely a time commitment and, and one can go too far and, 
anything that you do. Um, but there are so many pros in the people that you meet from all walks of life with all different types of backgrounds and uh, folks that are going through tough times at home, uh, folks that have uh, you know, tough times at, at their job. It's just such a, it's hard to not agree that you can solve a lot of life's problems on a three hour bike ride. Uh, it's free Amen. therapy. Um, and, and running as well. I, I've been a long time runner. So, you know, I've been racing bikes since I was a little kid. Uh, you know, really got more serious about it in about 2002 um, and kind of worked my way up the, the ladder there. I think I topped out around category two and I quickly realized that I probably wasn't cut from the right cloth to go much further, but I had enough in the legs to uh, have a good time and get out there and, and push myself to the limits and experience what that's like as well. Um, well, and I want to give you some credit there too, because at the same time, you also had a really promising career in engineering and you saw that the commitment to be a cat one was going to conflict with your professional goals too, I think. You're exactly right. Uh, that's, it was for, for me, I think there, we're not going to, you know, we can't beat around the bush. There's obviously a God given talent involved for all sure. of us. And then there's obviously a work component. And for some of us, that work component to equate with that God-given talent, uh, it's, a, it's a tough equation. And, and yes, I was really trying to balance the relationship and the, the job, the career aspirations that I had with the aspirations that I had on the bike. And, um, you know, I, I kind of came to the quick realization, uh, you know, I will, I will never forget, uh, and I'm, I'm going to tell this one for because some listeners probably would agree with this. We were in a Tuesday night worlds in Kansas city and there's a gentleman, a good friend of mine, uh, Brian Jensen. He was, oh, yeah. he had just come off the tour of California. He was racing for jelly belly. Uh, it was two, I think it was 2010. I was lean as I'd been in a long time. And I jumped up into a break with Brian and the late great Steve Tilford and Phil Groniger mm-hmm. and Shad Smith and Megan. I like, if, if, if I remember that moment because I was just grinning ear to ear like I'd made the big time, right? The, totally. The, <laughs> the, <laughs> totally. I mean, just, I don't belong here, but they were looking at me and they're like, all right, well, I guess you've welcome to the group. Let's and I remember this. we were, <laughs> let's do it, right? And <laughs> we were taking polls and I was literally just bleeding out my eyeballs. And I remember looking over at Jensen and he swings away from our group and he, stands up and he looks at us and then he looks back at the pack and he just walks away. Like we are absolutely standing. Amazing. Still. <laughs> God given talent. Lots of God given talent in that one. I mean, what a stud. And I finished the race and we were all standing around there in the grass and I'm like, Jensen, man, you just good for you. But wow, that was a humbling experience. And he smiled and he looked at me and he goes, you think that's humbling? Levi Leipheimer just did that to me and it's tour of California times three. And so it's all relative also, right? It's all relative. And it quickly made me realize my place in the world of cool. All right. So <laughs> I am, that's how far <laughs> away I am from these pros. Not that I, not that I always had the aspiration to be a pro, but we all at some certain points in our career think that'd be cool. Um, but I want to say one of the things I appreciated most about you in that, and, and I relate is that you got as good as you could get. You you got to your fullest potential, and that feels pretty damn good. I completely agree with you. Uh, I got to a place in my life there where I was right around 30, 32, 
I, I got to a weight that was getting hard to maintain without being a Buddhist monk uh, right. and not socializing with anyone. Feeling like shit, yeah. Oh, right, where it's just like bike, rest, sleep. Um, uh-huh. and, and I realized that, okay, if I want to still have a, a beer with the guys on Friday and go out to dinner with the wife on Saturday and still race on Tuesday, this is kind of about as far as I could go. Um, yep. And you know what? Looking back, I, I don't regret anything. Um, no. I don't wish I would have trained more. I don't wish I would have gotten skinnier. Um, and along the, but because it, it's really not about the destination as much as it's about the journey, as you're very well aware. Um, getting to that point took years of writing and learning and racing. And when you're doing that, whether you know it or not, you're, you're building relationships that really last a lifetime. Um, and developing your own character. And exactly. And I, I was listening to a podcast just the other day about the blue zones and, Oh, I love that. Yes. Yeah. And I remember he talked, Dan talked specifically about, you know, do you have three friends you can call today if you're, de- if you're depressed, if you're down and, you know, through the cycling world and the running world, I I'm very, very happily can say I've got more than that. Um, and people that would listen and people that would drop everything to come over if there was a problem. And, uh, I don't regret that at all. No, No, I, I, I'm with you. Most of my closest and longest friends, you included, came from cycling. So I'm very thankful for it. Well, uh, yeah, Yeah. it's, it's the coolest. And, you know, I switched over to running in 11 for a new challenge. Um, And this all goes into the story. I I tried to run marathons and tried to get even skinnier because that's when I really realized I wasn't cut out for that. I mean, if you really want to compete, that's, that's another 30 pounds. You got to figure out where that's going to come from. Um, but through the running, that same thing, you know, as you met me and you know, very much my MO is when we're in a pack or we're racing in a crit or we're running in a pack, I'm talking the whole time. I'm, I'm trying to make light of the pain. I'm, I'm trying to make, you know, Hey, I paid to do this. Let's enjoy it. Um, that's right. <laughs> if I quit, to, if I quit my job tomorrow, I guess I could make hundreds of dollars per year in gift certificates. Sure uh, but could. That's... <laughs> and socks. <laughs> and socks. Yes, socks and wheatgrass. Um, yep. <laughs> so so it, it's all about keeping so much of this stuff in perspective. Um, and it's it's really fun to get out there and be competitive, but it's it's more fun about the longstanding relationships that you build. Uh, you Definitely. included, obviously. Um, which is, in, which is what's led us really to today. And, and the story, um, the, the interesting part on, for me is I listen to a lot of podcasts and, and with a lot of different athletes and there's, there's, it seems to be, there's a couple different types of folks out there and there's the, there's the data hogs. Um, you know, we live in this world of GPS and, you know, when you and I started, we were, I was writing stuff in a journal. Um, yes. Yeah, like paper and pencil. Pre-training peaks, yes. There was no training peaks. I was there was a magnet on my front wheel. Um, That's right. Me too. (laughs) And a lot of times, (laughs) yep, a heart rate monitor, maybe, but it was it was only real time. And so now in 08, somewhere in between 08 and 10, I remember getting my first Garmin and thought that was just the coolest thing because now I can create a database and the engineering side of me came out and started building a spreadsheet and you could track 
everything from your resting heart rate in the morning to your every activity. Um, you could quickly figure out if you were fatigued and maybe you need to take the day off. Um, and so I, I was kind of blessed because I came from the old school guys that the guys that taught me to race. Scott Dixon was probably my number one mentor. You know, he always said, well, you know, check your resting pulse every morning and if it, get an idea of what it is. And if, if it's high one day, just take the day off. Um, that's how we that's how we train because uh, you don't want to overtrain. So I, it always stuck with me. And so historically, I've always taken my resting pulse. It's always between 35 and 40 uh, when I wake, right when I wake up. Um, and then from heart rate data, I got a really good handle on zones, racing bikes. I kind of knew how hard you could push it, which went really, really played into time trials, which is one of my favorite things to do. Sure. Because uh, you really were, you were, it was like a rev counter on your car. You just you knew if you went into that red zone for too long, sayonara, done. done. You were not going to recover, right? Yes, correct. And so um, I really got in tune with my body and I really got in tune with those heart rate zones. And that I really took that to running because running is the opposite of a crit. A crit's like up, down, up, down, up, down with your heart rate. And then the, the marathon and the half and above um, – I'm taking ultras out of this because that I feel is a whole different, sure, yes. different animal. Correct. <laughs> but but truly the marathon, I still believe to be one of the most epic things a human can do because you're putting yourself in the red zone for three hours and that's a long time. Um, and you really got to be careful with your heart rate and your diet and your, you know, ingesting water, et cetera. And so I got really dialed in to heart rate. I never really adopted power. When power came around, um, I kind of was not racing. I kind of, I was, I was doing riding more for fun and completion than, than truly like signing or having a uh, racing license. Um, but I continued to use heart rate and I use heart rate on every run, every bike ride. Um, it's kind of a real good check-in to see where, where the body is. Um, and in, I would say through 15, I finished the New York city marathon time. Wasn't my favorite, but it was fine. Um, after 15, Megan, that's when things started to change. Um, I took over a company. I started running a tech company and, uh, the pressures and the stress of, of doing that, I, I believe started to take a toll, uh, athletic endeavors, um, were put on the back burner. I still remained active, uh, but I didn't, they weren't front and center like maybe they were the previous 15 years. Um, and, you know, I'd always pick a couple of big events, um, try to put them on the calendar, something to work for. You know, 16, it was like I did the Leadville Marathon and 17, I did some half marathons in Canada and 18, uh, did the Leadville 100, uh, just as kind of a box check. And, um, and did some trail running races, just trying to find some new challenges, right? Like you can only do this. If you keep riding up lookout every single day, even that gets old. Um, Absolutely. And it is important <laughs> to have that athletic event out there to look forward to and kind of hold yourself accountable to some goal when you've got your head down doing work stuff. Oh, I agree completely. Yeah. It, it allows them. It, it's so much more. It seems like it's for the body, but it's, I'd say it's 80% for the mind. Um, 
to work towards that goal and, and to be able, feel like you can do it. And what I noticed was really from about 16, 17 on, my heart rate was getting lower. My, my, I couldn't, I wasn't seeing those 170s when I was really pushing it. I was really seeing 160s. And then as 18 and 19 came across, I rarely saw 160s. I was seeing 150s where I used to see those 160s. And I remember Let I had, me ask you, I want to interrupt ahead. you and ask you, did you think that part of that was because of age simply because back when we were taught about heart rate, we were told to extract our age from 220 or 226. And so by virtue of the fact that we were getting older, your max heart rate or your ability to get really high numbers was coming down. Did you brush it aside based on that? Exactly. You nailed it. I just assumed I'm getting older. Um, you hear a lot about stress and how stress can metastasize into physical uh, effects. Um, uh, you can rationalize pretty much anything you want as a human being um, in, in an ability to kind of brush it off. Um, but overall, yeah, it just it was it was getting slower and lower. Uh, in the wintertime, I was doing schema racing. Uh, you know, we're going up hills and down hills and I guess mountains and at altitude when it should be pegged <laughs> when it should be pegged. Yeah. So, and I was not seeing that. Um, I was still performing at a, at a level that when I get done, I'd, I'd look at who, you know, I'd look at the results and say, Oh, you know, that's respectable. And I'd always say that that's respectable given variables X, Y, Z, um, given, given what you're doing for travel. Uh, you know, hey, you just spent four days at sea level and now you're going up, uh, you know, at a basin as hard as you possibly can at 7 a.m. Um, versus and you're and you're racing against guys that live at 7000 feet. Um, right. It was really easy to say, well, you know, if I lived at 8000 feet and I didn't travel, I'm sure my result would be better. And you just went about your day. And how did you feel when the heart rate would just stall out, when it would hit that ceiling and it wouldn't break through into those higher numbers? How did you physically feel? You know, you fit. That's a great question. You physically felt like you were in the 160s and 170s. Even when though you the got, numbers weren't there? But the numbers weren't there. That's right. So, okay. so the respiratory system was doing everything it could. Um, the heart was not, was in my opinion, Obviously, I'm not a cardiologist, but it just it, the numbers were not correlating with what felt like the effort. Like, would um, your arms and legs feel numb, or would you feel like you were going to pass out? Or relative to the effort, what was the physical experience? So that yeah, that came later. Okay. So it was it was it was progressive. Um, Sixteen through eighteen, I just kind of chalked it up to all the stuff we just talked about. It sure. really culminated in 18. In 18, late 17, I hired a coach because my, my travel schedule was getting just obscene. And I, I hired a coach. His name's Joe Howdy Shell with Summit Endurance Academy. Great guy. I met him through uh, schema racing. He's the U.S. National Schemo uh, race team coach. Uh, the guy skis in jorts. Um, he's my kind of guy. Uh, one of the few guys that can really crack me up uh, with his, his dry humor. And, and he just kind of reinvigorated me, not only for the sport of schemo, but just for sport in general. He was, he was the, I met him at the right time in my life t 
to say, well, come on, man, you still got this. You know, don't don't just give up on all your athletic endeavors. Let's let's work together to put a plan that, you know, given your short amount of time to train, let's just make that effective. And so he picked me up in, like I said, I believe sometime in 17. And he made me do a couple of quick tests, uh, you know, running as hard as you could for two miles or three miles. And, and he looked at my heart rate zones and said, hmm, these are a little lower than some of my folks, but we can work with that. We'll just, again, I chalked it up to age and, and I had custom heart rate zones based on what he was seeing. Because uh, remember, he's only he's not seeing me run. He's only seeing my data. Sure. Um, but I was still performing and and then towards he got me through several trail running races and then uh i got into the leadville lottery and he helped me work towards the leadville lottery and so i started working on some long you know i'd ride my bike from denver to vale or i'd ride my bike you know up to independence pass or not yeah up independence pass and back from leadville and just to get high altitude work but again i'm running 120 heart rate and I wow. remember he, he would comment in my training peaks, like, hey, man, uh, I need you to push it. <laughs> I need you to push <laughs> it. <You're> like, <laughs> and I'm like, hey, man, I did. I am pushing it. <laughs> but the heart but, rate numbers don't say that, do they? No. And, and, I, and, he said, and, I, and at the time, you know, I wasn't – I'll be honest with you, Megan. I felt like I was going hard. I didn't feel any pain in my chest. I didn't feel any – and like my hands weren't going numb. I did – there was no – indicator that something was wrong um then i finished the leadville 100 um i got my buckle uh not my favorite time i was there with the um i turned in my training peaks file and i remember the first thing joe said is he he commented he goes what in the f were you doing out there because it was so low i yeah my average heart rate was 122 Oh my gosh. And, and he said, well, I understand you're not wanting to win, but at the same time, this isn't a parade. We're, and I oh, know wow. you, were you just talking to everybody and were you stopping at all the, all the different uh, uh, rest stations and aid stations? And I'm like, no, Joe, I was, you know, obviously there's, if you've done Leadville in the lottery, it, it can be a little difficult because you're at the back of the pack and, it, it, it is a, a little more difficult to, to get out on the, the pointy head of that spear. Um, so there's a lot of walking involved up Columbine and whatnot. But, but still you're at 10,000 feet and your heart rate should reflect that. That's right. That's right. My heart rate peaked. My max heart rate in that event was 163. And it was in the last 100 meters where I saw the finish line and I stood up and sprinted just so my wife would look would think that I was trying. Um, wow. And so the highest heart rate was that. And again, though, I finished it and I was like, you know, it's cool, man. You know, fall of 18, I don't really have any big events. Um, but we'll, uh, we'll just keep working together and keep training. And, and I kind of wrote it off, but if you look at my data files from 18, specifically 18, I was, I had a lot of things that didn't add up. Um, Going up lookout, you know, I'm not the fact. I remember guy. that. I remember talking to you during rides up lookout where you said, I just feel off. It must just be that I'm working too much. And yeah, lookout week much. with you guys. Um, yep. I just, again, I chalked it up to that. And 
Um, and then 19, that's when stuff got real. Um, in 19, you know, we were pregnant. Um, Fred was born in August. Uh, we had a uh, vacation, a baby moon, if you will, uh, planned in Maui. So I went to oh, Maui. Oh, that's and, right. Haleakala. Yes. Oh, that's right. <laughs> and I was talking to a good friend of mine. Uh, so Larry Leith, he, he's he got a place down there. And he said, hey, I'm going to hook you up with a guy. I'm going to get you a bike. You you got to do the West Loop. You got to do Haleakala. Just beg your wife for a couple days. And I'm, I'm telling you, it's worth it. So I rented a bike. And yeah, I did. The West Loop, I didn't really think about my heart rate much. I was really taking it in. But then I did Haleakala, which for those that don't know, it's, I believe, the longest paved climb in, in uh, North America. Well, not North America. I don't, well, I don't it's certainly the most gain because you go from sea level to what, 12 or 13,000 feet? It's uh, 10.3. Okay. So, but that's 10,000 feet of gain, which is pretty hard to find on a paved road. That's correct. And for those that haven't done it, it was a kind of a shocker. I mean, you do. You start at the bike shop there in Maui where I got my bike. And um, he's literally across the street from the intersection where the climb starts. And you're literally at 1% to 2% immediately. There's, there's, no, there's almost no flat. Uh, it is relentless. It is uh, – it just – it is a true um, – I believe it's 30 something miles, but as you're climbing this thing, the first half of it, before you get to any of the switchbacks, you really have to have a strong mind to continue, especially <laughs> when you're by yourself. I was solo. Oh, I think it, I it would have been <laughs> had a head oh. there uh, where we could uh, talk and, and joke. Uh, That'd be that would have been more fun. Yeah. And you also have to remember it's hot. Um, yes. and it's humid and you're going through different climates. You're leaving like a jungle like climate. And so you're losing body fluid like crazy. Um, so you're having to constantly drink water. And I remember thinking, man, my heart rate was like 95, 105. <laughs> um, and I'm not saying I was racing it. Right. But but still, that's almost resting heart rate. That's right. And I'm climbing this thing. And I'm just like, wow. this is weird. And I just remember thinking this is weird. And But once again, Megan, I thought, as any other cyclist, we're, you know, you as an athlete, we are pre-programmed almost to just push through the pain and, and ignore the pain and embrace the suffer, right? So I quit looking at my watch and I just took in the the – the scenery and, you know, you hit 3,000 feet and then 4,000 and they have signs all the way up and you hit 5,000 feet and then you start to climb above tree line. And then you, um, it's just an amazing thing to do. I can't say it's the most fun bike ride. <laughs> you know, there's a reason that they bust everybody to the top with those piece of shit bikes and then send them back down the hill, you know? <laughs> oh yeah. I saw all those guys coming down and <laughs> that looks a lot more fun. And yeah, you're especially uh, towards the top. You're like, boy, I, maybe I should have just paid for the the ride. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I got to the top and finished it off. Got down to the bottom, and and I remember looking at the data file, going, "Man, that is low." Um, but again, I just immediately went about my business, uh, put my bike away, washed it, took a shower, and got back to vacationing with the wife. Um, and I also remember like jogging there. 
was really hard. And, you know, I thought, why is jogging? And when I mean jogging, I mean, you know, eight to nine minute miles of just cruising along the, the boardwalk there, trying to sweat out last night's Mai Tais. Like, you know, no, this is an interval workout. And it was, I just kept saying it's the hangover. It's the... What, what, what felt hard? You just felt super sluggish? Or can you yes. describe what hard felt like? Super sluggish for the effort. Um, so again, I'm not the world's fastest runner and I don't claim to be, but for me, an eight to eight thirty should be a walk in the park. Um, it should be a total recovery run. And it felt like effort. Like one of those okay. things where you're going along and you're like, man, I must be doing seven thirty seven minute miles. And you look down and it says eight forty five. Wow. And your mind for a second goes, huh? What? That doesn't add up. Like it doesn't make sense. I I I feel because again I've had twenty years of going off of feel and heart rate, and it just mathematically wasn't make sense. But again, I could man Megan, I could rationalize it. Sure. Up one side, down the other. Um, and what was your heart rate doing while your RPE, your rate of perceived exertion, was at like a nine? What was your heart rate doing? Super low again. Zone one, zone two. Wow. So Every not time. matching up at all with your perception of the effort. But then again, like you said, you blame it on, oh, I'm at sea level and the air's super thick, or oh, I had one too many drinks last night and I just feel like crap today. And that's all right. That. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, I maybe it's because I was out uh, paddle boarding the day before. And it's like, you know, in retrospect, it's like, give me a break, dude. Paddle boarding. Come on. I mean, you look, I, that has nothing on a, on a, on a six mile jog. You're going to feel usually I would do a six mile jog and then we would go surfing or paddle boarding or whatever. Um, so the rationalization, maybe it was there, but it didn't make sense really in retrospect. Um, so I left Hawaii and I thought, okay, whatever. And then in the summer of 19, you know, we were approaching really the, the focus and the, the, the mindset was all about the kid. Uh, we were getting right. ready to bring the kid in. Um, we were having all the, those, the last trimester, there were multiple checkups because my wife, oh, by the way, that sidebar there, since my wife is over 35, who, you know, my wife, she's one of the fittest people oh, yes. that I know. Um, and the doctors called her a geriatric pregnancy because she's yep. over 35. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> even though she's super yep. fit and we had no complications, thank, thank God. Um, you know, so the summer of you know, June, July was just squeezing in runs here and there. Um, however, in July, about a month out, my wife kind of gave me a hall pass and I grabbed a buddy. Uh, his name's Jay. And we took off for a trail run up through the back bowls of Vale. And we were climbing and Jay is a guy that typically I can keep up with him, easily match his climbing ability. And he was waiting for me. I was walking. Oh, wow. And I was walking up sections of, of the trail that we usually jog and talk. And I thought, he goes, man, are you okay? And I said, Jay, I, I'm just, I don't know, man. I, I think I'm tired. I'm not acclimated. We haven't been spending much time in the mountains lately. Again, I had five reasons. And maybe that's true because you as a fellow bike racer, bike racers are some of the best people at coming up with excuses for not performing. Oh, yes. <laughs> Indeed. 
there's a whole, I think you get a master's degree in excuses uh, as being, (laughs) of being a bike racer. And a lot of times bike racers like to, to whip out a few of those excuses before the race starts, just to make sure. sure like you a know. preemptive, uh-huh. But, <laughs> yeah. but on a note of seriousness, let me also say that these things you were saying, because I was hearing them when I was riding with you, made complete sense to me. We also know and understand that every time you board a plane, it has physiological effects. You were doing that twice a week, traveling three days a week, on and off airplanes, eating uh, restaurant food, not the healthiest food, not the worst food, but you were eating out a lot. You said you were having, you know, drinks because you're in a sales position and you were kind of whining and dining as yep. per usual. And, and you're right. Like you go from even just Denver at 5280 up to Vail at over 8,000. And yeah, that does feel different. And so all of the excuses that you're saying you were using are also pretty legitimate at the same time. Exactly, which makes it which is a difficult in the context of this. <laughs> and that's right, and that makes it difficult to say that the rationalizations were completely in left field. They were not, to your point. Um, and I and I should take a step back. Before that trail run, we had lookout week with you, and I love that. And I anyone listening that is in the area, I hope they join us this year. Um, it's just a fantastic week of. Getting your, yeah, I'll admit the 4.30 wake-up calls are my least favorite part of that ride. But oh, yes. as many many a famous runner has once said in the past, the hardest steps on any run are the steps out the door. Um, right. It's no different with these rides. You know, as soon as I'm clipped into those pedals and I'm heading out in the dark and it's crisp and cool and I'm, it's, it's a little dark and I'm heading towards Golden, it's one of the most best feelings in the world. Um, and then there's a sunrise and yeah. And then there's this amazing carrot at the end of the stick where you're about to see, you know, 25 of your friends at the other side of it. And you all get to climb up lookout lookout during lookout week for me, the easiest part is lookout (laughs) because I'm with you and others and we're just chat, chat, chatting. And next thing you know, lookout's over. Um, and, but I remember that summer and that season, I started climbing lookout when I moved here. I think my first time up lookout was 12. Uh, my times, I, I consistently, when I climbed lookout was roughly 26 minutes. Um, not, not trying really hard. Yeah. Um, not jamming on it. Yep. Not jamming. Right. So, you know, I'm not one of these 110 pound guys breaking 20 minutes. Um, but just cruising up lookout was about 26. Well, I looked back and in 19, I never broke 28 minutes. And I remember, Oh, Wow. 28 minutes when I did do it felt like it should have been 21 minutes. If that makes sense. Oh wow. Because of the effort, because, because of, the, of the effort, received exertion. Exactly. And I blame that on, I'm roughly 10 to 15 pounds heavier than I was in 12. Um, but you and I both know, maybe not you, cause I've never seen you with an extra 15 pounds, but I know when I gain an extra 15 pounds, if I want, I can jam for, for a solid 25 minutes and push through an extra 15 pounds. Um, I might not get a PR, but that 15 pounds is not going to hold me back that three that to four much. minutes that much. Right. Right. And through, and throughout that whole lookout week, I remember talking to you and I remember trying to go up with the lead group and I could, I remember seeing Vince. I was going up there with Vince and I remember yep. I can't hold his wheel. And yep. I would drop back to the second group, couldn't hold their wheel. 
drop back to the third group and just, you know, kind of cruised up, but something wasn't right. Um, because there was a couple. I remember you saying it like, man, I'm just off. I'm just, yeah, that was it. I'm just off. I remember even saying that to you. Um, I'm just off. And I remember the time you were on your electric, by your, uh, electric yeah, assist bike. And I, for the life of me, I could, it was everything I had to, to hold on to you with, with that bike. Um, yeah. and when we get and to again, the top, all the reasons made total sense. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, you're right. All the, you know, leading up to that though, I tried, I mean, I cut out bad food. I cut out booze, you know, it's, you know, I tried to put at least, I like to use that week as a good kind of kick in the butt to get back on the tracks. Sure. Back on the rails. Um, cause it's, you know, typically mid to late June. Um, but it was just off and I should have noticed, but I, you know, at that time there still wasn't enough data outside of, you know, I didn't have enough to go to a doctor and say, Hey doc, I'm off because my lookout times are weird. That's right. <laughs> Cause the doc's going to be like, uh, okay, well, you know, you're 40 and you know, maybe you should lose some weight and clean up your diet. And so we had the baby, um, which led to, you know, the obvious, which is disturbed sleep pattern for a month or so, um, which for anybody out there that is listening that hears these horror stories about lack of sleep with kids, it's not a big deal. Um, <laughs> the stuff we do to ourselves. You know, as athletes, right, if you've done ultras or you've done Ragnar relays or or uh, I've done hood to coast or any of these things, these events that we voluntarily choose to do to ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That is harder. Um, okay. Cause with a baby, you, you learn from those events that this too shall pass. Um, sure. exactly. You know that you're going to get some sleep. You know that you're going to go back. You're going to take a nap. You'll figure it out. And then it goes by faster than you think. Um, however, during that time to be, the best support person I could be to my wife, you know, I put my athletic endeavors on pause and I would just squeeze in an hour and a half bike ride or, you know, five or six mile run when he was taking a nap and all those runs, Megan, like September and October, they were just awful. Were they really? Um, Once again, I could never get out of zone one, zone two. Um, I just felt crappy every once in a while what throws off all the data is you would have a run where you felt spectacular in retrospect yeah and in retrospect i i i believe i was probably running on adrenaline okay um for those you know if if i lots of caffeine and (laughs) think yeah totally like you're caffeinated up you're you do have a lack of sleep and you just let it rip and you get done you're like wow all right i feel good um and then we kind of get to the crux of this story, and that that really occurred um, in about Thanksgiving time. If you remember Thanksgiving time in Denver, uh, the snow gods, uh, for those of you that don't like snow, the oh, snow gods hey. have been mean to us. <laughs> we had, like, what, two feet in Denver? Yeah. Or, um, yeah, over it was that, big at Thanksgiving. It was. Like, they can't – that was the first time I, I saw them basically cancel some of the turkey trots because there was too much ice. Um, but I just felt awful. And then in December I got chest pains. 
Um, I would go for a run and uh, say four, five, six miles. And it felt like, you know, to describe it, it felt like your heart rate monitor strap was too tight. Um, oh. it, you know, like it, it felt, and so guess what I did? I said, oh, well, you're, you're overweight now and you've got a kid and you've been uh, not taking care of yourself as maybe as best you could. You probably, your heart rate strap's probably dialed in for old Walt. <laughs> so just loosen your heart rate strap, man. Sure. So I did. And that didn't help. <laughs> it was this tightness across your upper chest that at the beginning of a run, um, I would have this tightness across the chest. Um, but a lot of times, Megan, it would go away, like at mile two or three. Oh, um, interesting. Which I could coincide with a change or a shift in your heart rate at all. Like, would it? Was there any connection oh, the there pain, between the tightness and the heart rate? That part I, I don't know. I can't answer okay. that. Okay. At that time, I just I wasn't even paying attention as much to the heart rate as much as I was the pain and just sure. hoping it would go away. And it just, it didn't. So in January, I said, all right, that's it. Like clean eating, uh, no booze. Um, you just, just clean your, for lack of a better term, just clean your shit up, get better yep. sleep. And this thing will, you know, self, self-medication, right? And this, this will all get better. And it got worse. Um, wow. The pain was there. It used to be intermittent between runs. And then it was consistent between every time I'd run. Um, but only when it, running. Not only on when running. Basis. Okay. And I don't ride a trainer. Um, so I don't ride indoors. I, I wasn't riding at the time. Um, when I was skiing uphill, I would not have the chest pain. I would just have a very, very low heart rate of, say, 100, 110 when I'd usually have about 130, 140. Um, and I was like, man, just, this is just weird. And so I came home and lucky for me, I, my uh, neighbor is a retired emergency room doctor, Dave. And I said, you know, Dave, this is what's going on. He said, you know, that sounds like it's probably heart related. And let's, let's keep an eye on that one. That's not normal. Um, why oh, wow. don't, when you go out and have these feelings, why don't you come back? Let's talk about it. And I said, okay. And, uh, and then it all kind of came to a head. Uh, in mid-January, I went um, down to New Orleans for a work trip. And there's a, there's a trolley trail down there along uh, St. Charles that, if you're familiar with it, you can fly. It's a, it's a dirt, hard dirt pack, and you know, you're basically below sea level. And usually you can clip along just like you took a weight vest off when you come ah. to elevation. And it was the opposite. And this is where I started running, Megan, and uh, it started to radiate into my shoulders. Oh, wow. And then it radiated into my hands, which I think you alluded to earlier on this yep. uh, podcast. And I remember I got to, I was going to do a six mile run and I got to mile two and a half. And both hands were um, not numb, but um, fuzzy. Wow. Fuzzy. That's um, a great descriptive word. Yeah. <laughs> like tingly. And I stopped there and I thought, you know, this is not right. Um, I need to go back to my hotel. 
And I ran back and it all kind of went away. And I called Joe and I said, Joe, this is what's going on. I said, well, that's not normal. Um, I think when you get back to Denver, you really need to talk to a doc. This is, uh, this is not something I have experienced with my athletes. Um, I know we've talked about your heart rate in the past. I think, I think we need to take this to the next level. I, I advise you to get some medical help. And that's probably the best thing that he could have said. Totally. And I told Dave the same thing. And Dave said, yeah, it's time. Um, you need to see a cardiologist. And so the interesting part of that story is as a athlete, as a cardio athlete for 20 years, what is the last thing we think is going to be a problem? I mean, obviously the heart or anything related to the cardiovascular system, because you've been exercising it continuously for 20 years. Right. Yeah. We're the people that I don't, I hate to use the term elitist, but we're the people that ride past McDonald's and look at the drive through line and go suckers. Yeah. I mean, like we would the, never touch that with a 10 foot pole. <laughs> right. Like that's not what I eat. That's, you know, we're, we're doing this. Uh, some of us do it for recreation or competition, but at the end of it, a lot of us are doing this because we never want to see that cardiologist when I'm 50. That's right. We never want to have to take those the heart pills. We don't, we don't want to have to be in that doctor's office, you know, with our legs shaking up and down, wondering what's wrong with me. Um, and so I call the cardiology, uh, cardiology office over here at Lutheran, and they've got a really good heart and vascular center. And I said, hey, I need to see a cardiologist. Cause I didn't know what to do, Megan. I don't, I don't have a, I only see a, a, a chiropractor. I don't. You don't even have a primary care, care or anything. Yeah. Primary care. And they said, well, who are you? And I'm like, well, I'm Walt. And I need I'm to see you. a cardiologist. You've never seen me or heard of me, but I want to come in. <laughs> right. Yeah. I'd like to come in and see a cardiologist. Yeah. <laughs> well, who's referring you? And I remember I said, well, Dave. And they're like, who, who's Dave? I'm like, oh, Dave's my neighbor. <laughs> and yeah, like, oh, it's a little more complicated than that. <laughs> yeah, uh, sir, I appreciate that you want to see us, and I appreciate that Dave recommended. <laughs> but uh, do you have a referral from a primary care doctor? And I said, no, no, I do not. Well, what what's the problem? And I said, well, I have chest pain when I run. Well, I'll tell you, those are the two words that you need to use. Oh, wow. if you want to get in to see a cardiologist? And they said, you have chest pain right now, sir. And I said, no, not at all. And they said, okay, we will, uh, we're going to go ahead and get you on the calendar, but it's going to take three weeks. Oh. And I said, three weeks, you know, is it, if there's a cancellation, can you let me know? And I called Dave and Dave said, yeah, that's pretty typical for a specialist is, is that three week period. But you know, Hey, good old hard headed athlete, Walt, decides that weekend that he's going to go skiing. <laughs> um, okay. So the wife and I load up the family truckster and we head up to the mountains and we unload the truckster and going up and down the stairs and taking the kids, uh, all the kids crap in and <laughs> Megan, all of a sudden there comes the chest pains, oh, just no. like the running chest pains. And I stopped. I remember I stopped and I sat on the couch and I was like, Oh man, that now I'm concerned. Like that was eye-opening. So I went down to, to Vale Health and uh, went to the urgent care, and they hooked me up on an EKG, took my blood pressure, 
took my resting pulse. And throughout that, and I forgot to even include this, throughout this entire process, throughout the, you know, the chest pains and the tingly fingers and the the, the shoulder tingle, mm-hmm. when I would wake up in the morning, Megan, my resting heart rate was always the same, 35 to 40. Wow. So, like, I'm not getting any indication that there's something it's wrong. Enough. And that I'm fatigued or nothing. It, was, it just didn't add up. So I got done and they said, you're good to go, sir. Your EKG is is nice. Uh, You've got a good heart rate. Uh, Your blood pressure is good. You know, does heart rate, does heart disease run in your family? And I'm like, nope. Um, Well, there's nothing really we can do with you. Uh, We think that you have uh, costochondritis. Um, And so for those that don't know what that is, that is a condition of the, your ribs once again, I'm not a doc, but when your ribs come into your sternum, or is it, I think it's your sternum in the middle of your uh-huh. chest, um, there is tissue between your ribs that can become inflamed and they, and, and it can irritate you. And, uh, I was like, well, you know, um, maybe I have that. Um, I've been lifting a baby seat with a baby in it, in and out of my car. And I've been using my arms more than I've ever used them as a cyclist. We don't tend to use our arms for more than lifting a beverage. That's right. Uh, <laughs> so in fact, you know, so I, maybe that's what it is. And they wow. said, yeah, I think you're okay. So I went skiing the next day. And as you know, that's probably 11, the, the resort's roughly 11 ish thousand feet. And uh, on runs that I usually just rip down top to bottom, I was having to stop. I think what were I you stopped. feeling? Tightness in your chest or just way out of breath? Way out of breath. Okay. Like you're breathing through a straw. Wow. Like if, if a sea level, if a guy that lives in Houston drives up to uh, the mountains and decides he's going to run straight up a peak, that's probably like what that. he would feel. Um, okay. Did you feel nauseous at all? No nauseous. Okay. Okay. Yeah, no, but the, the out of breath and Melissa, my wife's like, are you all right? And I'm like, I'm just out of breath, you know, but once again, you're the, the big, strong athlete. There's no way there's anything wrong with you. Wow. So you, you fight through it, you get done skiing. And, uh, I got home and I talked to Dave and he said, uh, come here, let me, let me, where, where, where's your, uh, where's your chest? Where do you think you're getting the pain? He took his finger and he just poked on my chest. He goes, Does that hurt. I said, no. He's like, you don't have costochondritis. You, you that need would have to see hurt that. right away if you were getting poked, that, right? That's right. Okay. You need to see that cardiologist. And so I think I was about a week and a half out from my appointment. But like any other athlete, it's really hard to sit still. Um, yep. You feel you get in the situations where you feel lazy if you didn't do something. Yep. So I tried running around Sloan's Lake, which is near my house. It's a flat three-mile route. And uh, – I ran about a half a mile and my heart rate spiked to 164 in the first half mile. Wow. And it dropped to 88. And for the last, yeah, I couldn't get it above 88 for the last two miles. And I thought. Are you kidding me? Two miles at that? At 88. And the breathing was like I was trying to inflate an extremely large inflatable. Just. Wow. Just, just pounding it out, and I'm doing almost a nine-minute mile. So I'm like, this, this just can't be right. Um, took a couple days off, thought that would fix it. 
Um, once again, jumped on the bike that weekend. We had a really beautiful day in February. Um, I rode a little loop, uh, similar to the one I rode yesterday and, uh, heart rate for the entire loop was 90. Holy um, shit. <laughs> never, I never broke a hundred and I was just like, Oh my gosh, you know, that's. And it felt challenge, not challenging, but I'm sure you felt like you were doing something, not just sitting on the couch. Exactly. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. But what got me was my hands went numb. Um, So this was the first time I was on the bike with the experience and got it very similar to like an ill bicycle fit. Um, Like you're not getting circulation to your hands. Um, I thought, Oh my gosh, like I got to turn. I I actually cut that ride short and went home and told Dave, and I think I was four or five days out from my appointment. And Dave said, that's it. Doctor's orders. You're not doing anything. I don't, I don't want you running. I don't want you biking. I want you to sit on the couch and just wait for your appointment. Wow. Um, probably saved my life. That those what he did for me there um, in retrospect. And so I went in to the cardiologist, saw him Thursday told him the same story I told you and he just sat back. He took all the information and he just listened and he said, look, you've basically been performing your own stress tests because you're an athlete. You know your body better than most. So I have no reason to run you through the stress test program that we have. It's not going to tell me anything new, Um, but you're also not actively having a heart attack. So I can't put you into the cath the cath lab now, but I would like to have you in tomorrow morning at eight. And I said, "Oh, okay." And I need to get you to get an echocardiogram today, and I need you to uh, take these pills for the rest of the day, and I need you to chill out. Just wow. go home, calm down. Just don't do anything at all. And if you're if this was the day before Valentine's day, which I believe this year, that was, uh, that was one of the holidays. I think it was president's day or Martin Luther King. It was president's day weekend. Yeah. It fell on a Friday. Yeah. President's Mm day. And we had plans. Some folks were coming from out of town to go skiing. And I remember we were walking out of the the room and I said, Oh doc, I guess that means I can't go skiing this weekend. And he spun around with the most stern look on his face. Like, like your dad when you're when you when you just did something wrong as a child and he looked at me and he said, No, you're not going skiing this weekend. But and then he took two steps and he turned around again. And he goes, Have you been skiing in the last three to four weeks? Mm-hmm. I said, Yeah, I was. He goes, How long were you skiing? I said, I don't know, four hours, five hours, something like that. And he just shook his head. I remember he shook his head and he looked at me and he said, Okay. And I left, and the people that were scheduling my appointment said, well, we can get you in next week. I know the doc said tomorrow, but there's no way. You're a, 40, you're a 40-year-old male. You've got no – you have no medical record. Uh, you have no PHP telling us anything. Um, Unbelievable. So your insurance is denying the procedure because I guess you know, this procedure is expensive um, to do. And uh, so they all of a sudden they call back to the doc and said, hey, we can't get him in until next week. And immediately they look at me and say, hang on a second. Don't go anywhere. We have, he wants to talk to me. 
<laughs> and so she comes running back. She goes, how does tomorrow at eight o'clock look? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> as previously said, discussed. <laughs> as previously discussed. And I said, fine, is this an emergency? And she goes, oh, no, 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 no. This is not an emergency. Like her entire demeanor Demeanor. <laughs> no, you're, no, 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 no. You're just, you seem like, a, he said that you're kind of a type A and, and, oh, and nice, we think this, nice. this might cause a lot of anxiety waiting. So he'd really like to get you in tomorrow just to, to solve any anxiety that you might have. Mm-hmm. Little did I know it was an emergency and they cleared the slate in the morning to get me in. Wow. Yeah. Which is just crazy. Right. So uh, go home, you know, spend the night, you don't sleep, get up and they bring me in the cat. They rolled me into the cat lab. Um, they, uh, they're getting ready to go. And at the last second they turned me around because I guess the guy was having a heart attack in the ER and my doc had to go save that guy. So I got oh, wow. two more hours, two more hours to think about it, if you will. Oh, geez. <laughs> as if that wasn't enough. And, you know, as you and I are probably wired similarly, you're already shaking, right? Time. Because you're just nervous. Um, so they go in. Um, he went in through my arm uh, with, with the catheter, uh, went up through an artery in my arm, went down in my heart, looked around. That didn't take him long, and he found a uh, blockage in my left anterior descending artery, which is has a nickname of the Widowmaker, because mm-hmm. typically if it goes to 100% blockage, you have a heart attack, and you typically die. Um, wow. With 100% blockage, you know, so for those not familiar with the procedure, if you have blockages in your arteries, it's called coronary artery disease, and you build plaque hard plaque inside your arteries and the, the technology we have today is just off the hook. Amazing. Um, they're able to take a wire and they can go in, say you have a 60 or 70% blockage. That means you still have blood flowing. Mm-hmm. Um, so they can put a wire through that hole and then blow up the balloon. A bit. Yep. Spread it out, drop in a stent, uh, release the balloon. And then the artery wraps itself around the stent and then the stent remains in your heart Uh, with a hundred percent blockage. They typically don't see that unless you've had a heart attack. Um, That's where you've you've ever heard of anyone having bypass surgery, triple, quadruple, et cetera. That means the blockage was so severe that they had to open you up, take a vein from somewhere else and go around the blockage. Sure. Um, He, was in there for about three hours trying to get through the blockage. And at that time, basically was about to throw his hands up and had called some in some uh, on-call open heart surgeons uh, wow. who were preparing to open me up. Um, he went out and told my wife who's in the waiting room that, you know, she's sitting there watching her watch, as you can imagine, and said, hey, just a quick update. He, he does have a blockage. We are not sure we can get through it. Um, we have a, we have open heart surgeons ready to, to go. So he may go into surgery this afternoon. So you were looking um, at a bypass. You were staring it right down in the face. Right down in the face. And as you know, a bypass means, well, it's major surgery and major recovery. Um, yeah, they crack your ribs open and everything, don't they? They do. They do. Wow. And they're really good at it. I mean, the cath sure. lab is is, is rel- the catheter and this technology is relatively new. 
it's 25 to 30 years old now. Um, you know, in the 80s, uh, talking with Dave, you know, he was in the ER and he said, you know, when guys came in with heart attacks, we, we went straight to open heart. Right. Um, that's what we did. That's all we had. Um, so at the last second, I don't know if there was an angel on my shoulder or what, the wire found a soft spot in the plaque. And the wire went through the plaque, and he was able to get in a, a 38-millimeter stent. Wow. Um, which is long. Yeah, And then that wasn't, that wasn't enough, so he had to add a 10. And that wasn't enough, so he had to add a 12. So that 50, was enough. 50 I, millimeters. 50 millimeters of stent, all in the same artery. Um, the rest of my arteries were clean as a whistle. Um, that's incredible. And if you look at 50 millimeters, if you do the conversion, that's like roughly two and a half inches, I believe. Um, so your heart's roughly four inches ish long. So that's almost the whole dang thing. Um, wow. <laughs> that's a medical term, I believe. The whole um, dang thing. Yep. The whole dang thing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So I got out of it. You're awake. You're, you're partially awake the entire time. You're on drugs. You don't really know what's going on. You don't feel anything. You're, okay. Your eyes are open. You can see people. You can hear things. But you don't, you're not conscious in the, what you and I consider conscious. Sure. Um, and next thing you know, I was in the recovery room. And these doctors were coming up to me that I, I, didn't, I don't recognize. I recognized my doctor. And I recognized all, there were about five nurses that prepped me. Um, and this guy says, how you doing there, bud? And I said, oh, I feel really good. And he said, well, you're, you're a pretty lucky man. I just want to shake your hand and say, uh, you're a pretty lucky guy. <clears throat> That's right. I sometimes get a little choked up on this one, but you know, I said, well, thank you. I, I feel great. And he, and I remember he stopped and he goes, no, I don't think you understand. You're really lucky man. And he shook his head up and down and he, and he shook my hand and said, you know, I hope you have a good rest of your life. Right. Wow. And my wife was right there. She was in tears. Um, and we thought, okay, I'm not sure what that was all about. Um, then the next one came in. Turns out the two that came by to say hello were the open heart surgeons oh that gosh. were ready to open me up. Um, and were they all kind of standing by in the OR while this was all going down? It turns out that they were there the whole time. Oh my goodness. Just they waiting. Were waiting. Yeah. I've, I've learned that in the world of cardiology, you know, you have to be an internal medicine doctor. Uh, and then after that, if you want to be like the next step, or, uh, if you call it a step would be becoming a specialist, which would be a cardiologist. And then if you're a cardiologist, uh, a lot of them prescribe drugs and or listen to your because the heart has you know tons and tons of different types of problems um but uh the interventional cardiologist is the one that can use the cath lab which is what i had and then the next level above that's the surgeon so there's different levels gotcha. of specialty and so as i was getting you know the next day things kind of calmed down and my doc you know i came by and and i said i guess i owe you a big hug and he goes oh give it to your wife he said um <laughs> <laughs> he goes, I don't need any hugs. He goes, but statistically, I don't want to scare you, but you should have had a massive heart attack any time between in the last three to four weeks. Oh my God. With a, and statistically, you had less than 6% 
survival rate. Oh, I just got so, the goosebumps. Right? Um, it's heavy stuff. Uh, mm. At the time, you, you're feeling great because you're getting discharged, and it takes a bit of time for that to really sink in. I bet it does. And talk to us so, about the experience of that setting in. What does that look like, and how? Wh- where does Walt go with that information? You know, that's the best part of it. Um, I, you know, why I'm really lucky uh, or I feel blessed is that I didn't have the heart attack. Um, The heart attack can cause damage, permanent damage to your heart. It can cause uh, you to never run and ride again um, at at a level that you and I participate. Um, I I missed that bullet. Um, I also didn't have open heart surgery. So I dodged that bullet. So I am one of the lucky few that didn't really have much recovery because I just, he opened me up and it was like taking an 80 pound lead vest off. Wow. Um, Is that how it feels as you that's how? Oh, oh my gosh. Amazing. Just wow. amazing. He also told me because we're athletes, I developed collateral arteries around the blockage. And so if you think about my story, um, when I'm at, when I was at rest, I didn't have any symptoms and I could pass those EKGs. I tricked those doctors in Vail because of sure. that. I, I tricked them. They're not bad people. They're not no. bad docs. They at just, rest, you're fine. At rest, you're fine. And at rest, I was fine. But under load, um, that was when the issues happened. And, and yeah, so moving ahead, I mean, I took part in a two week cardiac rehab program. Um, they put me on a treadmill with an EKG and I was able to run and ramp that heart rate up. And I saw 177, oh which I gosh. haven't like, seen in so five years. Oh, it was the most enlightening feeling. The cardiac rehab may or may not have been required um, from a physical standpoint, but my doc said, look, I really want you to do it for the psychological because totally. I can tell you, Megan, the psychological when someone tells you you should have had this or statistically you should have had that, it's not easy as an athlete who runs and bikes. Had I had that heart attack, I'm not going to be at Gold's Gym or whatever where there's a defib on the wall where maybe somebody could have saved me. I would have been laying on the side of the road. That's um, right. You know, you have your mind tricks, plays tricks with you on that first bike ride. You think, man, I could have oh. collapsed on my handlebars and gone straight into traffic. Um, yeah. So it's kind of nice to be in a lab, having someone else help you rev it back up under supervision, I bet. hundred percent, hundred percent. And, and the experience I had in the lab was just fantastic in that that's where I met these people. I met a 35 year old male that had a heart attack uh, and he wow. was on a treadmill next to me walking and they wouldn't let and you know, he wasn't, you know, I'm not saying he was a world-class athlete, but they wouldn't let him do more than a walk for a week. Wow. And his program was 12 weeks. Yours was two. Um, huh. Right. Exactly. Um, so, you know, and that's, you know, and, 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 and that's where the experience is no different than on the bike, no different than running, just talking and listening and hearing other people's stories. Um, you don't, that's where the, the realization of how lucky I am sets in and I know this was a lengthy story. And for those that didn't hang up yet, um, I just hope that, you know, if there is that one person 
in New York City that's running around Central Park and feels this, you know, I hope they go see somebody. Um, I hope, and I, and I can tell you, Megan, uh, thanks to your introduction to Bill over at 303, yeah. that article. Um, that article was shared on Facebook by over 2,000 people that I don't that's know. That's awesome, Walt. That's great. And Bill has been awesome, awesome resource just to get the word out. And I've had Facebook messages come in from Phoenix, San Francisco, New York City, London, believe it or not. That's really cool. Um, of people saying, oh, my gosh, you know, I had a guy say, hey, I'm a three-time Ironman finisher. I'm this, that, and the other thing. You know, they give me their resume up front for mm-hmm. whatever reason mm-hmm. and say, I've, I've got the same thing. And I don't know what to do. Um and these are professionals. These are these are people with healthcare. <laughs> these are lucky people. You know, this is not, and they don't know where to turn because they feel like they've done all the right things. They feel like they've that's right. They've taken good care of themselves. They feel like I did. They feel like I'm not the demographic. I'm not the guy that whose picture on Facebook with 35 wires hanging off my chest. It doesn't make. It doesn't add up. Well, and to your point about your story, it's also not that easy to get it figured out either. I mean, you could have just stopped with the hospital in Vail telling you were fine. You could have even been in the cath lab uh, getting your um, initial preliminary test and them saying, no, we got to set this out another week and a half. Like because you have no pre-existing history, because you haven't been treating heart conditions all along, it's actually really hard to get yourself into the medical system to get it checked out. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. And, and I was blessed because, you know, I have to thank, you know, I feel like I'm accepting an, an MTV Music Award. I, I, you know, I have to thank Dave and I have to For thank, sure. uh, I've got to thank Joe. Yeah. I have to thank the people along the way um, that if you're not going to listen to yourself and someone else is going to do it for you, at least listen to them. Um, right. Telling you to go see that doc. And if it wasn't for those guys pushing me, who knows? Um, in my discharge on March 13th, uh, I did meet with my cardiologist again, and I am on a few meds right now. I, I'm on a couple of meds. I'll probably be on the rest of my life. Okay. Uh, you know, he, he felt like this was a genetic thing. Okay. Um, and he said, look, you know, you can't run from genetics. All uh, right. He, he said, I've seen vegans have this problem. I've seen vegetarians have this problem. I've seen meat eaters, um, Obviously, they, they did. I'm not going to say they didn't. They, they suggested a plant-based diet, uh, mostly for the inflammation perspective. Sure, yep. But none of them would sign a piece of paper that says, I hereby decla- declare this problem diet-related. Um, sure. It, it, genetically, that's the tricky thing, too, Megan, is we're at this weird place in endurance athletics where you and I – we were outliers in 2000 and 2004. Yes. That was, we were, it was not normal. Um, there was a marathon running. Marathon running was big in the eighties and in the nineties. Then, then there was jogging. Yep. Um, and then in the two thousands, really, you started to see people decide I'm going to push the limits, you know, dirty cons. when that came out, I was like, whatever, you know, who, no one's going to do that. 10 guys riding in dirt. Now it's, you can't even get in. That's right. Um, Leadville. Leadville was for, for nutsos. And now Leadville and the Leadville hundreds are bikers are, are doing this thing in under six hours. Um, 
they're looking for 200 mile ride rides and, and I'm listening to podcasts of guys riding across, you know, continents. So we're in this first wave of athletes, I believe that are trying to find and push our limits to an extreme yet from a medical records perspective, if you're over 40 and your granddad had a heart attack, they probably didn't do an autopsy on him. <laughs> they probably said heart attack, and who knows what caused that heart attack. It could have been what I had. could have been AFib. It could have been a number of things. So we're at a, you know, we don't have those medical records. Um, like my son will have, when he's 40, he'll have detailed medical records, and he'll be able to look for this stuff. But you right. and me and, and, and others in our 40s and up, that are still out there kicking and we've been doing this for 20 years and we love it. It's an unknown. Um, and all we can do is listen to our bodies. Well, and I think you've been raising a point all along. One of the most common themes in your story was that you fell off. And I think whether you're an athlete or not, we're all innately tuned to that inner wisdom and it's where we get into troubles and we try to ignore it. And, um, so trusting your gut, so to speak, is really important. When something feels off, it probably is. And empowering people to take those actions sooner instead of, you know, rationalizing them like you kept saying that you were doing. That's correct. 100% correct. Yeah. It's, um, if, if things are feeling off, for you know, it's hard for me to say that 19 and Lookout Week or Haleakala or the Leadville was that enough data to go see a cardiologist? I don't know. Um, but it might have been a great time to see a PHP and get a baseline. Um, maybe we could have done something sooner. I don't, I don't, I can't answer that. That's hard. You know, obviously hindsight's 2020, but you have to listen to your body. Um, and I've just taken this route now that, you know, statistically, I shouldn't be on this podcast, uh, right? like it or not. Statistically, I, if you look at how the cards lined up for me, I'm lucky that I had a coach that listened to me. I'm lucky that I happened to live next to a ER doc that listened to me. I'm lucky that the cardiologist that was assigned to my case was an interventional cardiologist by trade who does cath lab stuff day in and day out. I, you know, had those three things not lined up, I don't think I'd be here. Uh, that when I was released on the 13th of March, you know, he said to me, he goes, look, you remember how you mentioned to me, you went skiing. And I said, yeah, he said, you should have died that day. And again, I'm not trying to scare you. He said, but if you combine what I found in your heart and you combine that with very cold air, which causes our arteries to tighten. And you combine that with high altitude, which causes our arteries to tighten all of that together should have you should be done but somebody out there obviously wants you on this planet and uh <laughs> i still want to figure out who that is just kidding Aww. uh <laughs> but somebody wants you here your your work is not done yet so get out there and fight the good fight and and that's why i'm so happy that you had me on and i'm just again i i hope that this message whether it's the article or this podcast if it helps, if it helps so much as one person, um, I think that's awesome. 
Amen to that. And thanks for sharing your story. I do believe it will continue to have impact and empower people to take some steps to see if perhaps there's something else behind why they feel off. Uh, in closing, what what is Walt's new take on life? Give us some give us some amazing wisdom or some some insight as to what does that feel like that gift of knowing that you've been given more time that you maybe weren't maybe going to get to have, like, what does Walt 2.0 look like? You know, Walt 2.0. Well, first and foremost, I had to change my name on Strava. So I'm now Walt 2.0. So that's, I, that I I took that to heart. I changed that the day I got back. The first time I walked, I I don't want to be cliche in that. Um, you don't ever know this day could be your last. Um, that's all true. I think that goes out regardless of uh, my condition or anybody else's to, to, you know, it could be a car wreck. It could be cancer. It could be a number of things. Uh, for me personally, it has caused me to have a significant uh, recalibration of what I find important in life. Um, whether that is balancing your spiritual life and your physical life and your working life. Uh, for me, uh, with the eight-month-old, that's my priority. My priority is to be the best husband I can be, to be the best dad I can be for my son, and to realize that all those things I was looking forward to in August of 19, you know, the, the glimmer in your eye of being a dad and wanting to teach your kid to ski and bike, and, oh, man, I can't wait till he's five, and or he's two years old, I'm going to get this kid going down the slopes. None of that's a given. That's right. Um, not, it's, it's not. It's, um, I am a, sitting here telling you right now that that's not a given, and I have I recalibrated my life to ensure that that's fully understood, uh, one. And two, it's fully understood that there's a lot of humans on this planet that don't have that perspective. And if, if they go on a bike ride and they hear this story – with me yapping and they change their life a little bit for the better, then that's awesome. Uh, we it's this COVID thing where we started. I, I know, I know we started this whole conversation talking about the COVID thing and being tighter yep. with our community. And this is a great time for the same kind of introspection and to figure out when you come out of this, um, a lot of families are spending more time together than they ever have. And that's right. all of us should take a chance, whether it's my story or COVID or, Take a chance and and sit down and balance your life bank account is what I like to call it. Absolutely. Um, and make sure you've got everything in, in check because you might find out you're chasing the wrong things. True that. So do you have a do you have a book or um, something that you're reading right now that's just really touched you or something that's resonating with you? Anything you want to share for people to an article online to read or a movie or you know, um, I, I, I will tell you that uh, The Haywire Heart was suggested to me by many folks um, interested in this, uh, in the heart-related aspects to endurance athletes. I know Mr. Zen up there in Boulder wrote that. I believe it's been out a couple of years. I would definitely recommend checking that out. Um, the, the interesting thing on my particular situation with coronary artery disease is the, it's a silent killer. Um, it is something that creeps up from behind you. You don't see it coming and it just knocks you out. Uh, we have lost some athletes in the Denver area within the last couple of years yeah. who, uh, of what we believe could be what I had. 
that unfortunately for them, they did not uh, either. It got them with no signs or, or whatever happened there is unfortunate, obviously. Um, it, what's interesting is the research I've done is there's not a lot of research uh, for people with coronary artery disease, my age, um, and correlating that to athletics. And so I've been working with Bill, I've been working with others, I've been working with folks at Strava, I've been working with folks, uh, the founder of Map My Ride, uh, having conversations with cool. these folks about, you know, is there a way to, to get somebody in the medical field to do a clinical trial or someone to, to look at the data? Um, we are all collecting data. We've got whoop straps, we've got garments, we've got whatever. Um, we are a society right now with Fitbits and steps and, and I work in a tech industry with data and data is cool, but it's only cool. It's only powerful when it becomes information, right? You got to use it. You got to use it. You got to pay attention to it. You got to be able to interpret it. And all I can say is that, yeah, we can collect all the data in the world, but until we do something with it, um, it's just data. So yeah, we'll see what's we'll see what happens in the next few years. I've got some ideas. Uh, I've got a great team of people around me, and hey, hey, you know what? Uh, someone might listening might want to get involved, and I'd love to hear from them too. Cool. Well, we'll include your email on the website. But is there another way that you would like to have listeners who are audibly listening to this? Any what contact information do you want to share with people? Oh yeah, I think email's fine, or they can find me on Facebook. Okay, um, that's totally right cool. Reach out yeah, to me so via that. It's and, Walt uh, Lesser, B-L-E-S-E-R, uh, also known as Walt 2.0 on Strava. <laughs> that's right. That's an easy way to find me on Strava. Um, and yeah, and if you're in the area, obviously, Megan, we can't finish this without a, a plug for uh, Lookout Week 2020. That's uh, right. By, <laughs> by June, I'm hoping we're all out and can congregate oh. at the pillars and head up together. Yeah, that's right. So for everyone listening in the Denver area, we usually do it the last week of June. Uh, so the Wednesday of Lookout Week it also tends to be Bike to Work Day, which is great. And uh, we meet at the Pillars with wheels up at 6 a.m. So um, look for that event or group on Facebook as well. It's unorganized. It's low-key. It's just people who meet and ride up Lookout five days a week. And uh, Walt has been attending every year since I started it, which I think we're probably getting close to 10 years this year. Uh, I haven't really kept track of it, but it's a great tradition. It's always fun to see everybody's faces. And especially after being locked down by myself for the last month, it'll be really, really nice to reconnect with everyone. So I think, yeah, that's a perfect example of things that we might've taken for granted that uh, totally this year we won't. We definitely will not. I've got a final question for you that I've been teeing up to more recent guests during COVID, which is, um, and maybe you just answered this, but what is one way that you think the world is going to actually be better from this or after this? You know, I just, again, I think it comes back to a reassessment of what is important. I think that, that the United States has a short uh, you know, it has a short um, memory when it yes. comes to major events. And you and I have lived through several ourselves. We lived through uh, 9-11. We lived through the, the banking crash. Uh, yep. It wasn't that long ago that I was surrounded at, at a cocktail party, you know, after the banking crash by people telling me they would never buy a house. They were, right. were going to rent the rest of their lives. They would never get a mortgage. Well, that's in the rearview mirror. 
That's right. Um, and I think that we all fell right back, you know, eight years later, a lot of people fell right back into the trap of working really hard to buy a lot of shit you don't need. That's right. And I think that this is, you know, outside of the fact that I wish I had stock in the Charmin Corporation. Um, and the Amazon. And the Amazon. I think we as a society are realizing how little that we can really live with. And I yeah. think we're going to see a really interesting pushback against employers as well. I think the way employee-employer relationship is going to change um, in the work from home and yeah. uh, work-life balance, I, that's, that is a big change I think that's going to come out of this. I think you're going to see a lot of employees come back and say, look, boss, I, I was have to be there five days a week. Yeah, I, I, I did everything you needed me to do and more. Um, I, I want to work from home Tuesdays and Thursdays. Yep. And I think it's going to be very, very difficult for human resource policies, et cetera, to deny that. And I think that's the change we're going to see. And we're going to remember this time as possibly forever changing how we view the uh, corporate work structure. Uh, I'm already hearing in the tech space, in the space I play in, I'm already hearing about a hub and spoke approach where they would like to downsize their brick and mortar cubicle offices to multiple conference rooms, a few offices that the team can come in and meet once a week and then go back to their homes if they so choose and work the rest of the week and then and proceed as follows and, and use the office space in a way that maybe we didn't foresee ever using an office space. It's going to be cool, uh, isn't it? We're going to get a little bit is. of humanity back, I think. Yeah. I do. I do. I don't think we're all going to work from home the rest of our lives, but I think we're going to see a shift for the better. I believe that as well. And my hope, as you alluded to with our short memories, is that it sticks and that it has lasting staying power and that we aren't just bamboozled by um, the very crafty marketing schematics who convince us that we need to go back to consumerism and consumption to go back to quote the way things were to feel normal again. So I personally have made that commitment to myself to resist that. And sometimes it honestly just comes down to unfollowing brands or uh, accounts on Instagram or on Facebook that I feel are trying to influence me or even that I am susceptible to influence and just removing my brain's attention from things that might suck me in Um, because that is also human nature, of course, to want the next new shiny thing. And I just don't want to fall prey to that anymore because to your point, those things don't matter to me anymore. I love living with less. And this has definitely shown me how much, how, how very little I need to truly be happy. And it honestly comes down to having a safe and warm home with a little bit of food in the fridge and my health. And beyond that, I'm good. (laughs) I'm good. Exactly. And I, amen. I, I think you couldn't have said it better. I, I, I really do. Well, I'm excited to see where you go from here, Walt. I really appreciate you sharing your story. I would love to do a follow-up with you in like six or eight months once you've had the opportunity to really extrapolate the data that you've been collecting for the last few years. I'm hopeful that you'll find a company that can really assist you in that deep dive and um, would love to share what you what you learn and then also just to share where you've gone with all of this it won't surprise me at all to see you up on stage delivering this message to large rooms of people i hope that um i hope that you'll consider that because i think that could be a really powerful keynote speech delivered at corporate events and you can be a walking talking model of um 
you know, how important it is to take care of yourself. But even when you do that, sometimes there are other things going on behind the scenes and to really, you know, honor your, honor your intuition ultimately. I agree. And that's, I, I really appreciate that. Cool, man. Well, I will include a link to the 303 cycling article that you referenced. We'll have a couple other things up on the website. And again, people can find you on Facebook, Walt Blesser or Walter Blesser. And uh, thanks so much, my man. I really appreciate your time today. Awesome. It was so good to talk to you again, Megan. You too. Say hi to Fred and Melby. Right on. we Will do. We'll see you. Bye. Thank you for listening to Maximum Enthusiasm with Megan Hopman. Subscribe, check out our blog, and learn more at MaximumEnthusiasm.com.